Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, Lord, we're just grateful. We're grateful that we can be here. We're grateful that we can gather in your presence, Lord. We're grateful for, for everything that you have done for us and continue to do for us, Lord. And Father, as we, as we gather this morning, we pray that as we open your word, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, Lord, and that you would draw us close to you. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm just kidding. You guys were fine clappers. I feel the glares. Starting in um, the mid-1930s through the mid-1940s, back during a uh, bef- little bit before and leading up to World War II, you remember that the Nazi party, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, began to implement what was known as the Final Solution. Right? It was that campaign to, to eliminate the Jews from Europe and then ultimately from the world. And you may remember that the, the Jews were rounded up and they were sent to, to ghettos or they were sent to extermination camps. And um, you know, they were, remember there were, there were camps in, in Germany and in Austria and in Poland and in Russia and in France and a number of other German-occupied countries. On October 12, 1940, the Germans established a ghetto in Warsaw, Poland. Now, this particular ghetto in Warsaw, Poland, it was about 1.3 square miles. So that's basically to I-5 squared, right? Within that 1.3 squared miles, there were an estimated 450,000 Jews living in there, almost half a million people. It's estimated there were about 7.5 people per room. It was, it was a, 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 a dire tragic situation. And one of the nurses who was allowed to work in the ghetto was a Polish woman named Irina Sindler. And every day, Irina Sindler was allowed to go in and out of this ghetto. And realizing what was about to happen to the Jews, she began to smuggle medicine every day to to, to treat the people who were symptomatic in the ghetto. And on her way out, she would sedate a child with the mother's, the parents' permission, and she would put them in a, in a gunny sack and put them in the back of her truck and, and smuggle them out of the ghetto and place them with Christian families or in Christian orphanages. And Irina and her network saved an estimated 2,500 kids. And what she did was she, she took the names of all these kids and she wrote them on a piece of paper and she buried them in a jar in her backyard. And ultimately, she hoped that after all this is over, she would be able to reunite those children with their parents or their families if they survived. Over a period of time, eventually, Irina was, she was um, captured. And she had, was tortured by the Nazis. And they broke her legs. And they did horrible, horrible things to her. But through that whole process, she never gave up that list of kids. She, she held true to what she was called to. She was a, a, a true hero. And I was just thinking about her story and how it takes great courage to accomplish great things. Or it takes knowing 
that you're called, and that's what you're supposed to be doing. And we see this, this same brand of courage on display in the life of, of Saul Paulos of Tarsus. That, that initially, I, I wrote in my notes, that, that fearless dedication. But then I, I kind of thought about it. Maybe it, it wasn't necessarily a, a, a fearless devotion all the time, right? Because we know that Paul did struggle with fear on occasion. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks, after Paul was chased out of Athens and the Lord calls him to Corinth, he was fearful. And he didn't want to go into Corinth. But what we see is that even though Paul struggled with fear on occasion, he was willing to do the tough things. Even when he was scared, even when he was frightened. And we see Paul here going from city to city here, sharing the gospel. And we've been kind of looking at the stuff that's happened to him over the course of, that, of those missionary trips. And I think realistically, most of us, after the first or second time that we're beaten, first or second time we're, we're thrown in jail, and we're whipped, and we're shipwrecked, bitten by poisonous snakes. You know, somewhere along the line, we're just going to throw in the towel, most of us, right? We'll say, you know, I, I gave it the old college try. I gave it my best effort. I'm going home. Paul here, he understood what was at stake. And because he realized what was at stake, he refused to quit. Because he understood that eternal souls were at stake. The eternal destiny of the people that he was speaking to was at stake. Because he knew the value of their souls in the eyes of God. He, he refused to give up. Knowing that it wasn't just about this life. This temporal passing life. But understanding that their eternal damnation or salvation was at stake. Paul willingly walked into the face of danger over and over and over again, risking his life. Remember, we just saw Paul imprisoned and beaten in Philippi. And what does he do? He sets off to do the exact same thing again, knowing full well that the same thing could and probably would happen again. That's courage, isn't it? That's a, that's a standard for us to aspire to. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now a couple of little interesting bits of trivia here. Right? The text implies in the original language that it was a three-day trip to Thessalonica. The first day they went to Amphipolis, the second day to Apollonia, and the third day they made it to Thessalonica. And it's about a 30 to 40 mile trip between each one of those cities. So we learn another thing in here, that they were most likely on horseback. Because you can't walk 30 or 40 miles a day, right? 
especially having been almost beaten to death a few days earlier. And so they get a, a, a new mode of transport, apparently. They're, apparently they're riding donkeys or horses. But, but here's what's interesting in this verse to me. They, they skipped two fairly major cities here. They bypassed two fairly major population centers. Why? If they're out on a mission trip sharing the gospel, why skip prominent cities that are right on your route? I have no idea why. It doesn't seem logical to me. It doesn't make sense to me. Right? These are prominent cities. There's, there's great opportunities for ministry. Who knew if they would ever be back to these cities again? But the Lord directed them on. And, and here's the thing. Here's the point I want to make here. When we are walking in the Spirit, when we're walking in obedience to the Lord, sometimes the paths that He leads us down, they don't always make sense. Right? They're not always logical. Sometimes the, the steps that the Lord asks us to take, they don't, they don't, they don't compute in our, in our economy, right? in our way of thinking. You know, we, we, we don't always understand, especially when we're walking into it. We don't understand what the Lord is doing. A lot of times, afterwards, we can look back and say, oh, okay, now I, now I see. Now I see what the Lord was doing. Now I see what his plan was. But oftentimes, the things that he calls us to initially don't make a lot of sense. And that's okay. They don't have to. We don't always have to understand why the Lord is leading us in the things that he's leading us in. We just have to obey. Right? I wish that I I wouldn't have used that Alfred Lord Tennyson quote last week because I could have rocked it today. It would have been perfect today. Remember, he says, he says, ours not to reason why. Ours is but to do and die. We don't have to know why. That's not our job to know why. Our job is to obey. What our job is, is to use discernment and try to figure out what the leading of the Holy Spirit is, to have a sensitive heart towards God, and then to walk in obedience. So, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they, they presumably at the leading of the Holy Spirit, they skipped these two cities and went on to Thessalonica. And this city, Thessalonica, it still exists today in Turkey. It's called uh, Thessaloniki. So it's changed a little bit. But in Paul's day, this city, Thessalonica, had an estimated 200,000 people there. It was a big city. It was a major port city. There were two prominent Roman highways that that intersected there. So there was a lot of people coming and going all the time through this city. And verse 2 says, And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Christ... Whom I, who this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So remember Paul, typically, he would roll into town. And his first stop was always the synagogue. He would always go and share the gospel with the Jews there. 
And we learned that for three weeks, Paul is there sharing the gospel in the synagogue. And it says that he did three things. He reasoned with the people. He explained the prophecies. And he proved that the Messiah must suffer and die and raise again from the dead. First, it says that he reasoned with the people. The word there for reason is dialegomia. And that word is where we get the English word dialogue. Right? He, he had a, a conversation with the people. There was a back and forth exchange. Right? He didn't roll into town and unroll the scroll and just preach and yell at him for 14 hours. Right? They had a dialogue. They, they discussed the scriptures together. And second, he explained the prophecies. Again, the, the Greek word is significant there. Dia, it's dia anoigo. And, and that word means to open up completely. And I think that's significant. He sat down and he taught them and he opened up completely the word of God. He went through the whole of the Old Testament, starting in Genesis. Sure, he started there in Genesis 3.15, right? That, that proto-evangelum. He talks about how, how the seed of Adam, how, how his heel would be bruised by the serpent, but then he would crush the serpent's head. And I'm sure he goes through the rest of the Old Testament talking about the coming of the Messiah and where he was going to be born and his family line and all those, those hundreds of prophecies. And then it says that he proved, he, he demonstrated, he, he persuaded them. He argued passionately the case for Jesus here, showing him that Jesus was to suffer and die and rise again. Now remember, in that time, the expectation was that the Messiah was going to come in riding a stallion, right? He was going to come in and he was going to overthrow the shackles of Rome. And he was going to set up Jerusalem as the, as the capital of the world. And he was going to rule and reign. And their expectation, it wasn't wrong, was it? It's just their timing was off. They didn't understand the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. They had them confused. Because that's exactly what Jesus is going to do in the second coming, right? He's going to come blazing in. He's going to, he's going to rule and reign. He's going, to, he's going to overthrow the oppression of the world. He's going to establish his kingdom. And that's what the Jews were waiting for in, in Jesus' day. And Paul says, look, there's two events. The first time the Messiah comes, he's going to be a suffering Messiah. Undoubtedly, he took him to Isaiah 52 and 53, talking about how Jesus was going to be despised and how he's going to be rejected, how he was a man uh, acquainted with grief and sorrows, how we turned our backs on him. Uh, undoubtedly, he, he talked about how he was pierced for our rebellion and how he was crushed for our sins. He probably quoted the verse that says that we, all of us like sheep, have gone astray. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord have played on him the iniquity of us all. Undoubtedly, he explained Psalm 22, how he was pierced for our transgressions, describing the crucifixion. 
He explained what David was talking about when he said that the Messiah's body would not see decay, that he was going to rise from the dead, that he was going to come back to life. I'm sure he explained the, the symbolism there in Jonah, of Jonah being in the, in the whale for three days and nights, just like Jesus was in the grave. I'm sure he quoted that, that verse in Zechariah where it talks about how Jesus, they, they looked at his wounds and asked him where he received the wounds, and he replied, I received them in the house of my friends. Right? He, he unpacked the whole of Scripture and Bible prophecy over the course of three weeks. This was, this was Paul's master class on theology, right? On prophecy. And it must have been a powerful presentation taught by an absolute expert on the subject. He's dialoguing with them, teaching them, passionately preaching that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So some of the Jews in Thessalonica here, they listened and were persuaded. They were swayed by Paul's explanation of the word. They believed and they and they joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the God-fearing Greeks, right? These are, these are Gentiles. They haven't converted to Judaism, but they believe. And they would go to synagogue, and they, would, and, and they, they, they believed in the God of the Old Testament. So Paul here, he starts this church with this small group of believers. But verse 5. The Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. As we go through the book of Acts, it seems like wherever there is a courageous proclamation of the gospel and people are converted, there's almost always conflict, isn't there? You see these men of God courageously preaching. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They're being changed by the power of the gospel. And the natural result is that there's going to be conflict. See, as we talked about in the last couple of weeks, there are, there, are, there are spiritual forces at work in the world. There's a spiritual war waging around us. There are forces of evil and forces of good that are battling each other. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God are at war. And when, when too many people start to defect, when they start to change their allegiance, the enemy has to do something about it, right? And so there's conflict. And we see it here starting again in this verse. Some of the Jews here, they grew jealous. Right? They're losing their position. They didn't like their people switching teams. They didn't like their people changing camps. They didn't like it that they were losing authority, that they were losing power, that they were losing money. Right? Those are strong motivators. And so they got together and said, guys, we need a plan. We've got to, we've got to deal with these Christians. We've got to nip this thing in the bud. We've got to stop Paul and Silas. So they go down to the market and they find some troublemakers, some bad characters, 
But the, the King James says, lewd fellows of a baser sort. It's a good description, right? These are dishonest guys. Guys that are willing to do anything to make a shekel or two. And I think we've all experienced guys like that in life, right? Scoundrels, cheaters, liars, scam artists. And they get these guys to, to start a riot. And I want you to see this. They purposely and dishonestly cause trouble so that they would have a reason to go after Paul. They go to the home of Jason, this guy where, where Paul is staying with, and they want to drag Paul out onto the street. And we see the mentality here. They were ready to deal with Paul themselves. They were ready to kill Paul in order to put a stop to this gospel message. They were ready to silence this because they couldn't defeat it with reason. When you argue against the word of God, you're going to lose. Every time, always. You can't prevail against the scriptures. And if you want to discount and reject the scriptures, if you want to deny the scripture, you have to do it dishonestly. In order to reject the word of God, you have to be spiritually and intellectually dishonest with yourself. And I want you to get that. When you're presented with the facts of the gospel, when you're presented with the evidence, in order to reject it, you have to lie to yourself. Because the word of God, not only is it true, but it is the truth, right? Verse 6, when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love this verse. Paul and Silas, they're not there. So the crowd, they drag out Jason and some of the other new believers and they, they haul them up in front of the, 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 the city magistrates. And they say, look, Paul and his guys here, they've been, they've been causing trouble all over the world. They've turned the world upside down. And that is such a great turn of phrase, I think. That they were turning the world upside down. They were impacting the culture everywhere they took the gospel. Now listen. Ever since the garden, ever since Eden, ever since Adam and Eve first sinned when they ate that fruit, the whole world has already been upside down. Man's spirit is broken. Our cultures, our societies, they're broken, they're fallen. We're messed up. And we see it growing worse all around us, don't we? The things that are wrong are called right. The things that are wicked are called righteous. The things that are good are called evil. It seems like our society, our culture is, is more and more coming against things that are godly, against godly living, trying to, to, to force us to accept their point of view. Can you imagine 
20 or 30 years ago, or even 10 years ago, who could imagine that we would be where we are today? The crazy stuff we see. Poor Mr. Potato Head. Can't even be Mr. Potato Head. Now he's just Potato Head. But the crazy stuff. Right? I, you know, I, I, as you know, I tend to avoid politics from the pulpit. I don't talk about it a lot. But I'll say this. I was watching the, um, the Senate confirmations this week when they were confirming uh, Dr. Levine. Any of you guys see that? Paul Rand is, is talking to this, this transgender, I'll use the quotes, woman about, about transitioning children from male to female or female to male. And, and, and he asked this, this doctor several times, will you, will you condemn the practice of, of transitioning children as young as three years old from male to female and vice versa? And he wouldn't do it. That is insane. A three-year-old. Man, if you have kids... Uh, you know, just, just taking away the, the moral nature of it, whether it's right or wrong to do that at some point in your life. Have you witnessed the decisions of a 3-year-old? Or a 10-year-old? Or a 14-year-old? Can you trust them with anything? Right? These are permanent decisions that are drastically going to impact their whole lives. Would you let a six-year-old get a tattoo? You can't even let them pick out their own clothes for church. But you want to let them decide if they're little boys or little girls? It's insane, the things that we are seeing in our culture. The world is upside down, isn't it? And to a degree, it was the same in Paul's day. Immorality was rampant in Paul's culture. The world was already upside down. But through the power of the gospel, Paul was setting things right. He was changing the system. He was making an impact. The gospel was changing the cultures that it was going into. Listen, that, friends, that's our call. That's our mandate as believers. Not to turn the world upside down because it already is, but to help set it right. To impact our cultures. To change our cities and our countries and our societies through the power of the gospel message. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because, and don't mention, don't, don't, don't miss this. Take note of this. It's only through Jesus Christ, it's only through the power of the gospel that real, lasting, legitimate spiritual change can take place. There's no other way. Well, positive change anyway, I guess we should say. But be warned. This will upset people. And they will hate us for it. They will hate us 
for unbalancing their world. And, and for some people, in many people's minds, you know, if you're, if you're a drug addict, you're a criminal, or you're a prostitute, or you're, you know, whatever it is you are, it's, whatever, it's your life, it's your decision, you know, people use this phrase, and I absolutely hate it, but they say, you do you. But if you convert, and you change, you begin to follow Jesus, what happens? You become the enemy, right? You, you clean up your life, you're not, you're not committing crimes, you're, you're not hurting people anymore, you're not abusing drugs, and all of a sudden people turn on you, Right? They, they liked you better when you were a drug addict and you were strung out than when you were a Christian. It's crazy. Interesting story. Luke chapter 8. Remember Jesus is there and, and there's a guy who, who is demon possessed. And he's crazy. Right? He, he runs around naked out in the catacombs all the time. And, and every time they, they chain him up, he, he bursts the chains. He's this wild guy running around. And, you know, he's, he's not the guy that, that you wanted to invite to your bar mitzvah, right? He, he, was, he was sort of the life of the party, I guess, but not in a good way. And Jesus comes and he, and, he, and he casts out the demons. And the guy puts his clothes on. And he combs his hair and he takes a bath and he goes into town. And what happens? The people were afraid. And they drove Jesus out. He was driven away. Very often, when we are agents of the gospel and we're affecting change, people will reject us and they'll despise us and they'll drive us out. And that's just the cost of following Jesus. And we need to know that. We need to be aware of that. But don't. Let that stop you. And Jason has received them, they say in verse 7. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Jason, he's in front of the city authorities here facing charges. They say, look, these men, they have, they've committed treason. And that was a very serious accusation. If you were found guilty of treason, you would be put to death. They say, look, they're professing allegiance to another king. Note that there's no question what the disciples were teaching, right? They weren't watering it down. These guys knew exactly what they were proclaiming, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the king of kings. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, right? They were concerned. They didn't want their city. They didn't want Thessalonica to become known as a, as a center of, 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 of sedition and rebellion against Caesar. They needed, to, they needed to squash this thing right now. They didn't want to bring Rome's wrath down upon them. Verse 9 says, And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Jason and the other guys, they posted bail, and they were released. I told first service, I really worked hard to try to think of a good dog, the bounty hunter joke to work in here, and nothing came. 
But, uh, but just mentioning him, that's enough, isn't it? I know you guys are all thinking of that hair right now. <laughs> um, but as we move into the next account, it starts out pretty similar to this account. But as we're going to see, the people have a different attitude towards Paul and the scriptures. And there's a very different result. But let me ask before we get into it. At this point, how many of you have just called it a day? Right? There's been riots. Your friends are arrested. You know, maybe we'll just take the evening off and have a barbecue. Not Paul. And he's ready to go. It reminds me a little bit of Joshua and Caleb back in Numbers. Remember the 12 spies were sent to, to check out the land of Canaan. Remember the Lord had, had promised this, this land flowing with milk and honey. And they sent 12 spies in to check out the land. And they all come back and they say, it's amazing. You should see the size of the grapes and the size of your head. You know, there's, there, it's, it's amazing. It's perfect. But there's just one problem. There's giants in the land. Right? They're too big. They're too strong. They're too powerful. We can't do it. We can't take the land from them. We should just pack up and go back out to the desert. And Caleb and Joshua speak up. And they say, we should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. And the others respond, no, we can't. It's too hard. It's too difficult. The opposition is too strong. We, we can't defeat them. And Joshua's not having any of it. And he says this, only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread to us. He's talking a little smack here, isn't he? Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The NIV says, we will devour them. Caleb and Joshua say, we can do it. Don't rebel against God and his plan for our lives. He's already given us the victory. We're already fighting from a position of victory. And we know what happened next, right? They stormed the land and take over. No, that's not what happened, was it? The people turned on Joshua and Caleb, and they tried to stone them for showing courage in the face of danger, for understanding that God was on their side. Look what David wrote in Psalm 27. He says, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be content. He goes on and he talks about how, how the Lord is my light and my salvation. And he says, because of that, you know, nothing else scares me. I know that my God has me. He is my stronghold. And here he says, look, the enemies advance. They want to consume me. They want to eat my flesh. So what? God is my stronghold. The enemies, their armies are encamped about me. War breaks out against me. He is my stronghold. My confidence is in him. And that's Paul's attitude here. Paul knew that God had already given him the victory. 
And because of that, he didn't care about the opposition. He was taking the land. Armies were encamped against him. He didn't care. He was in the stronghold of the Lord. Like David, he said, whom shall I fear? So we see they establish a church, and immediately they move on to the next city on the list. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they hid from the authorities. That's not what it says, is it? When they arrived, again, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, Berea is sort of a small, out-of-the-way city. Not a major port city like Thessalonica was. So Paul rolls in, and he spends some time in the local synagogue. And verse 11, it says, Now these Jews were more noble, or some of your translations would say, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were more noble-minded. They, they had open minds, and they were willing to consider and learn new things and new ideas. And that's not that they believed everything that Paul told them just because he said it, as we're going to see. But they listened with an open mind, and considered what Paul had to say, and then look what else they did. After they heard Paul, they would go home, and they would examine the scriptures. That word examine, it means to investigate, or to appraise, or to call to account. They went home to study, and to make sure the things that Paul was telling them were truth. Listen. Anybody can stand up here behind this podium with a Bible in their hand and teach you something, right? Any of us, we can stand up here and we can be like chatty patty dolls, just pulling our own strings all day long, talking and talking and talking and talking. And it might be wrong, it might be right. How do you know? How do you know that the things that, that I'm saying are true? Or how do you know the, the pastor that you like to watch on YouTube? How do you know the things that he's saying? How do you know those things are true? You have to search the word yourself. Listen, there are so many people out there trying to use the Bible to teach things that are simply not biblical. If it doesn't line up with the plain teaching of Scripture... Reject it. If it isn't biblical, you need to reject it. Listen, if the pastor says something and it doesn't sound quite right, study it. Dig into it. If I say something that sounds a little bit off, don't take my word for anything. Search the scriptures. Remember, Paul is, Paul is addressing the the, the church in Galatia, when the Judaizers come in and they're trying to, to bring in circumcision, and then they're, remember, they're adding to the gospel. And, and Paul tells them this. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What Paul is saying is, look, you need to use discernment. 
when you hear the message. You need to make sure that it, that it lines up with Scripture. You need to be aware that there are, are false doctrines out there. You need to be, to be able to discern from right or wrong. In verse 12 it says, Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. As a result of, of careful study of the word, many people believed. Now I want to stop here for a second and make a couple points. First, the Bible, the inspired word of God, it can stand up to scrutiny. Right? We don't have to be afraid to ask hard questions. We don't have to ask in trembling voice, you know, what, what if the Bible's wrong? Look, if the Bible's wrong, toss it out. Reject it. Right? If the Bible is wrong, it's useless anyway. But here's the thing. The Bible can stand up. The Bible can stand up to inspection. The Bible can stand up to careful scrutiny. Prophetically, scientifically, archaeologically, in every way, when we examine the Scripture over and over again, it proves itself to be true. And what's more, many of, many of the most famous biblical thinkers, they started out as opponents of the Bible. Many of the most brilliant men of God, they started studying the Scripture solely to prove that it was wrong. And you know what happened? They ended up coming to Christ while trying to disprove the Scripture. What an irony, isn't that? Listen. Question the Bible. It's okay. Question the validity and the veracity of Scriptures. Study it. Research it. It won't let you down. It's true. And we talk about this all the time. The truth of Scripture. Oftentimes, people say things like, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you believe. You know, we all serve the same God. Whether you're Muslim or Christian or Hindu or you worship a frog, it doesn't matter. As long as you're sincere. As long as you just believe, it's simply not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus very clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So either Jesus is right, and he's the only way to the Father, or he's wrong, and he's simply not worth following at all. Right? Jesus says there's one way to get to heaven. There's no other name by which man must be saved. Listen. Salvation is exclusive. Right? It's a very exclusive club that anybody can join. And people get offended by that. 
I don't care. I didn't say it. I didn't make it that way. God did. You have an issue, take it up with him. God says, you want to come to me? Cool. Here's how. There's one way. Now, there are a lot of people who, who can think rationally but refuse to believe. And then there are a lot of people who have faith, but they'll, they'll believe anything. They don't use their minds. They'll believe anything anybody tells them. And both of those are, are extreme positions. God made us rational thinking beings. He gave us minds, and he expects us to use them. But we also need to understand that there are some things that are beyond our capacity to understand. And there are some things that we need to accept in faith. God is bigger than we are. God is smarter than we are. God is more powerful than we are. He does things that we can't understand. And I'm glad. I'm glad that he gave me a mind that I can think and rationalize things. But I'm also glad that he's bigger and smarter and more powerful than I am. Because frankly, I have no use for a God that's only as smart as I am. I have no use for a God that I can understand and I can grasp. Because he would be on the same level that we are, right? But our God, his thoughts are above our thoughts. And his ways are above our ways. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the city, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now that's some dedication on the part of the Jews, right? Walking 30 miles just to agitate Paul. And we saw earlier, remember they walked a couple hundred miles before just to follow Paul and to disrupt his ministry. So these guys from Thessalonica, they hear Paul is over in Berea and he set up shop and he's proclaiming the gospel. And so they come over and try to drive him out of there as well. And eventually Paul leaves and he heads off to Athens. And that's, that's the text for next week. But I want to close with this. First, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, open up the word. Search the scriptures. Research it. Find the truth and believe. Dig in. Ask the hard questions. God can handle it. The Word of God can handle it. Or maybe, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but you've been struggling with doubt lately. And maybe, maybe in your spirit you, you feel ashamed for, for doubting the things of God. And maybe you feel like, you know, I'm a, I'm a weak believer. I, I lack faith. And so you just keep on suppressing those doubts and trying to, to keep them all bottled up. That's the wrong course of action. Eventually those questions and doubts, if they're not dealt with, they'll, they'll manifest themselves in negative ways. And when they come to the surface, it'll drive you away from the faith. And all you had to do was dig in. 
when you struggle, when you have doubts, ask the hard questions and research it. Listen, God can handle it. The Word of God can handle it. If you're struggling and you're doubting, it's okay. It's okay to, to honestly say, Lord, I, I'm struggling, I'm doubting. Will you please reveal yourself to me? Right? That's nothing to be ashamed of. But don't deny that and hide it because that's going to negatively impact you. Don't be afraid to ask hard questions. And lastly, us believers, take courage. Life is hard. The times are weird. Serving God can be a frightening thing sometimes. Despite that, be willing to step out, even when you're scared. Be willing to take risks. Be willing to attempt great things for the sake of the gospel. Solomon says in Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Don't you like that? The righteous are as bold as a lion. Hebrews 10.39, But we are not of those who shrink back. And are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not those who shrink back. As followers of Jesus Christ, we don't have to cower and fear from the world. We have the strength and the power of the living God residing in our spirits. We have God dwelling within us. And as David said, if that's the case, then whom shall I fear? God has your back. Be bold. Stand up for righteousness. Turn the world upside down. Right? The victory is already ours. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for, for the words of encouragement that you bring us through the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would, first of all, if we're struggling, give us the courage to, to face our doubts and our fears, Lord. For we know that, that you are truth. And as we, as we dig into our doubts, Lord, we'll find a solid ground, Lord. We'll be able to trust you even more. And Father, we pray that you would give us courage. Help us to, to boldly and to proudly profess the gospel and to profess your name in this wicked and lost world that we're living in. We pray that in your name, Jesus.